Back in the, in the early days of light bulb technology, all light bulbs were made of clear glass. Now, now those are the decorative ones, but they were all clear, and this is way back where everyone was used to candlelight and oil lamps and that really warm glow, and so light bulbs had way too much glare for people's liking. The public didn't like them. And so in 1920, General Electric, General Electric developed the first light bulb made with frosted glass. But it wasn't good. It cut the, the light output down way too much, and the etching on the outside of that glass made already fragile light bulbs just incredibly fragile, unusably fragile. So as a practical joke, the old guard in GE's light bulb division assigned a group of brand new engineers, uh, again, as a joke, this job. We want you to frost the inside of light bulb glass. After light bulbs are made, we want you to frost the inside of the glass. The, uh, the problem was there was a guy named Marvin Pipkin who didn't know it was a joke. Fresh out of the army, Marvin Pipkin figured out how to do it. He was a chemist. And using chemicals, he figured out how to frost light bulb glass from the inside and only the inside. Um, not only did it not uh, it reduce that glare, it didn't reduce the light output very much, and it made the bulbs stronger, more durable. Uh, I read the process by which he did this chemically for time's sake. I won't share that with you for time's sake and also for the sake of I didn't understand a single word of it, uh, which is also part. But the moral of that story is Marvin Pipkin is an example of, of somebody who was asked to do something impossible. And he did it. It happened. Now, today in the book of Romans, Paul is going to tell you, if you are a Christian, to do something that seems pretty impossible. He's going to tell you to put to death your sin. He's going to tell you to kill your sin. Now, that can seem pretty impossible, and in some sense it is. You're never going to be perfected in this life. Uh, the Apostle John in 1 John said, and he included himself, he said, if we say that we have no sin, we're just deceiving ourselves. But even though we will never in this life be perfected, we can live lives that are consistently sort of flavored by obedience to God. Lives that are yielded to the direction of the Holy Spirit and the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We won't do that perfectly. But we can do this, or Paul wouldn't tell us to. But how? It seems so impossible. I know some of you have struggled with the same sin for years and years and years. How do we kill a sin that just won't die? 
Let's read Romans 8, 12 through 17. And take a look at what Paul teaches us about just that. All right, Romans 8, 12 through 17. Paul writing to the church in Rome, he says, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit or to our spirit that we are children of God. And if we're children, we're heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we also might be glorified with him. Paul, if he does anything in this passage, he encourages us, again, if we are Christians, to to live a life characterized by freedom from sin. It's been a while since we talked about this at first, but in Romans chapter 6, I said that, uh, or Paul taught us, that real freedom is not this, this idea that nobody can tell me what to do and I can do whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it. That's not real freedom. Because we are made to serve something. As human beings, we're going to serve something. We might serve our ambition. We might serve our flesh. We might serve sin. We might serve another person. We're going to serve something. So true freedom, real freedom, comes from finding the right master. How do we make Jesus? How does Jesus become our master, our Lord? One word. How does Jesus become our Lord, our master? What's the word? Faith? Belief? This life we live is a life of faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. Here's what I think Paul's going to do for us today because he wants us to be free from sin. Because he knows Jesus has thrown open the gate that leads to freedom, but we stay stuck in our old body of flesh. We don't follow him to freedom. Paul wants to know there's some stuff we have got to believe about ourselves, about our flesh, about our sin, and about our future. That if we don't believe these things, we will never walk in that freedom that Christ has won for us. I am convinced because this life with Christ is a life of faith, like steps one, two, three, and four are faith. We have to believe this stuff and our actions will follow. So what I want to do is we go through this passage, which is about you and me. It's about us killing our sin. I want to point out for you some things that Paul says we have to believe 
but that'll never happen. We start in verse 12, where the Apostle Paul tells us this. Believe this. You are not obligated to your flesh. You are not obligated to your flesh. Verse 12, it's worded kind of unusually, kind of funny. Grammatically, Paul says, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. That's what he says. It's worded funny. I'll tell you why I think it was worded funny. But first, I want to tell you what I think Paul's main idea is. This could be translated. His main idea could be understood this way. Here's what Paul is saying. Hey, Christian, you don't owe your flesh anything. Hey, Christian, you don't have to obey your flesh. That's what he says. What, the, what Paul means, that Jesus has, he has set us free from the law of sin and death. The general principle that we are born uh, enslaved to sin, separated from God, he has set us free from that. We are no longer enslaved to our, that old dead flesh and to our sin. We have everything we need to be free from a given sin. Now again, we're not going to do that perfectly. But we are not beholden to a certain sin. Isn't it easy to feel like that? Feel like, but I, I just have to. Or even, I just will get it over with because I know it's inevitable anyway. Paul says, no, you don't. And I mentioned Paul worded this grammatically in a, in a really funny way. I like this translation because it kind of preserves the goofiness of the way this was written. I think Paul writes this to make us anticipate he's going to say something that he doesn't say. Paul says, so then, Christians, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. And then the New American Standard just leaves that dash right there. He doesn't finish the thought. I think Paul sets us up. It seems like Paul should finish this. We're not under, under obligation to the flesh. I think we're supposed to maybe anticipate for Paul to say, but we are under obligation to Jesus. But he doesn't say it, and he won't say it. It's like we should turn the page and like, should you you're going to finish that. But Paul will never say, you are obligated to Christ. You know why? Because our relationship with God through Jesus Christ is not one of obligation. It's just not. Um, we are free to live with Christ. We are not obligated. To live with Christ. And there's a difference. You are not obligated to come here on Sunday mornings. Do you know that? Obligation works like this. After everything, this is God speaking now. After everything I have done for you. That's God's voice. Hey, after everything Jesus did for you, the least you could do is get your fanny in that seat on Sunday morning. Right? 
I don't come here because, wait a minute, I am obligated, you pay me. I am obligated to come here, so that's a bad example. You, scratch that, you are not obligated to be, obligation works like this. If I'm obligated to do this and this and this and this for Jesus, guess what happens, guess what I fall into when I fail in my obligations? Condemnation. Uh, I just mentioned I'm obligated to be here and preach on Sunday. If I fail in those obligations, you come here and I just, oh, he's at the lake. The crappie are biting. There will be some condemnation because I've failed in my obligation. That's not our relationship with God. You are free to come here. You are free to do everything in your life to glorify Christ. But you're not obligated. The difference is Christ met all of our obligations in the way he lived and the way he died. All of our obligations to God have been met in Christ. Now, that's why Paul, I believe, doesn't finish the thought because he would never say that we're obligated, we're free. But his main idea is, because he's encouraging us to kill our sin, you are never going to kill the sin in your life if you don't believe this first. You don't have to. You're not obligated, chained to that sin in your flesh anymore. Next thing Paul wants us to believe comes in verse 13. This might seem overly simplistic, but it's enormously important to believe this, and it's way harder to believe than it seems. And that's this, believe this, life in the spirit is better than a life of sin. A life where my life and my desires are submitted to the Holy Spirit of God, which will always lead me in obedience to Jesus Christ, that is better than a life in my flesh than anything else I can get from the world. Do you believe that that is true? Be honest. If you don't believe that me living for Christ, submitted to the Holy Spirit in obedience to him that glorifies him, if you don't believe that that's better than anything the world, my flesh, and the devil can offer, I will never be free from the sins that I want to be free from. No one becomes accidentally free from sin. You know that? Like I'm just going to wake up someday and just, nope, don't have to worry about that anymore. I have to believe that obedience is better before I will walk in obedience. Paul, here's how I get this from this verse. Paul starts, first half of the verse, Paul says this. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Well, that's terrifying. This can be a really scary verse to read so what does Paul mean there? It can sound like, here's what Paul means. Paul's been very clear in this book that justification, big churchy words that means God declares you to be righteous, comes by believing in what Jesus did only. Right? Grace alone, faith alone. That's how people are, become righteous. They're declared righteous, a free gift of God's grace. 
It sounds like in the first part of this verse, Paul says, but if you go back to living according to your flesh, if you go back to sinning, O sinner, God will take away your justification. Because if you live according to the flesh, now you're back in death. Paul does not mean that. He can't mean that. Paul's been very clear. I'm trying not to preach a whole bunch of previous sermons. But Paul's been very clear. Our behavior plays no role in our justification before God. So how can our behavior get us out of something it didn't get us into? Does that make sense? If we're saved by faith alone, that's still true, even after we're already saved. So that's not what Paul means. That if you go back to sinning, God will still send you to hell. So what does he mean? Here's what I think, here's what I'm convinced Paul is saying here. The wages of sin will always be, somebody finish that for me. For the wages of sin is death. Here's what Paul is saying. The wages of sin is still death even for us saved folks that are going to heaven after we die. There is one kind of death that is no longer a consequence from your sin if you have believed on Jesus Christ. That is eternal death. Eternal separation from God is no longer a possibility for you if you are a believer in Christ Jesus. Amen. But that doesn't mean sin no longer matters. God doesn't care about sin and your life will be the same no matter how many sins you sin. That, that's ridiculous. And so what Paul wants us to hear is, if you live according to the flesh, there is death. The stuff of death and hell is still in my sin, even if I don't die instantly, and even if I never go to hell. Sin always lets the death seep into my life. It will still kill relationships. It will still kill jobs. It will still kill futures. It will still kill my psyche, my conscience. It can callous my heart and lead to more and more and more sin, which leads to more and more and more death. Sin can make me lead just this necrotic life. You know what necrotic tissue is, right? On a, if you have tissue on your body that's just dead, it's still there. It's just necrotic. It's dead. Sin can make me live this, lead this necrotic life that just doesn't do any good. And those things are very much a possibility for those of us who will be in heaven after we die. But But, Paul says, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, Paul is not saying, if you quit enough sins, God will let you into heaven. No, no, no. Write down Romans 3, 21 through 23. Romans 3, 21 through 23, for time's sake, I'm not going to read it. But Paul hasn't changed his mind from that passage. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith, not from the works of the law, ever. But if the first part of this verse is true, and it is, if 
When I sin, there is still hell and death to pay, even if it's not an eternity in those things. Then the opposite of that is true. If I put to death the deeds of the body, if I kill my sin, there is a kind of life, abundant, real, joyful life that I will get only from killing my sin. Paul's language is really strong here. Paul doesn't just say, if by the Spirit you quit some sin, you'll live. He says, if you put to death, if you execute, if you kill, if you murder your sin, you will live. That's strong language. So John Piper likes to, likes to say it this way. In one of his books, he always says, make war against your sin. That's how serious Paul wants us to take our own sin. Because, listen, there is a kind of of life, chasing life, living it up in the world, trying to get more out of life apart from God that leads to death in this life. And there is a kind of abundant, joyful life, free life that only comes from killing our sin. And we will never even be involved in trying that if we don't believe that life with Christ is better than what sin can offer. That's the first step. And if we're honest with ourselves, that's been our problem on many things. I don't want to kill this sin. You know why? I like it. I feel like I'll be missing out. Do you believe that Jesus offers what is better than your sin. If you do, a couple of notes while we're here on killing sin. First, I want you to notice this. Paul does advocate that we uh, use violence against our sin, but I want you to notice we are to be violent against our own sin only. I am to make war against my sin, which means I may have to bring it out in the open so it dies of exposure. I may have to get tough with it. I may have to ask for help. I want to do whatever it takes to root out the sin in my life. Why? Because only people with X number of sins or fewer will go to heaven when they die? No, because Christ is better. And so whatever it takes, I want to kill my sin. John Owen, a long, long time ago, said this, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That's that's why I want to be violent against my sin, but only my sin. Paul's clear elsewhere, I may have to confront you in your sin. You may have to confront me and my sin. You might have to confront someone else you love because of their sin. You know why? Because you want what is best for them if you love them. 
And so you may have to go to them and confront them in their sins. So here's what you do. You wait until you've just had it and you run up to them and you explode with all the violence you can conjure up and anger and bitterness and tell them what a rotten snake they are. How's that going to go? No. I'm violent with my sin. But Paul says we are gentle with the sin of others. You who are spiritual, uh, uh, restore someone else who's in sin gently. When I, or when you, when I try to use my anger and violence on someone else for their sin, that's almost always about me more than it is about them. Do you know that? When you try to use anger and violence to root the sin out of someone else's life, that is always more about you getting what your flesh wants more than it is about restoring them into the life God wants them to lead. So I use violence on my own sin. I may have to confront you and yours, but if I do it in the spirit, I will do it gently. Paul said so elsewhere. Another thing I want you to know about killing sin Note the means by which we do this. By the Spirit is how we put to death the deeds of the body. That's so important. It's important for one reason. So we know Paul hasn't changed his tune. Has has Paul been clear? Does the law work trying our best to quit sinning through our own self-discipline and and efforts? Does that work? No. No. Here's what works. I go to the Lord in prayer. I don't know if you're comfortable praying to the Holy Spirit. I will, I will just tell you I believe all three persons of the Godhead are God and you can pray to them. But I know people have different opinions on that. But I would say, Holy Spirit, this thing right here is sin. And I know it. Will you lead me in how to make war on this And God will give you some violent ideas on how to deal with that sin. By the law, you know what we do? As long as nobody sees it, I think I'll just keep trying. The Spirit will use different tactics than my flesh to kill my sin. I mentioned it already. He likes to draw sin out in the open so it dies of exposure. Because if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to cleanse us, right? Forgive our sins and cleanse us from our unrighteousness. So putting sin to death requires submission to the Holy Spirit. What do you want to do about this sin? Also, by the Spirit, I put to death the sins of my body. God, what do you want uh, my job to be like, my marriage to be like? What do you want this day to be like? Will you lead me through this day? We talked about this. This is last week's sermon, but... The Christian life is not me doing whatever I want to do and trying to be good while I do whatever I want to do. It is giving my life, my career, my my marriage, my kids to God and asking for him to help me balance all of those things. That's how, a very brief on how the spirit helps us put to death the deeds of the body. If you're ready to be violent with your sin, Ask God to show you how.
and listen. But we will not do that if we don't first believe whatever God has for me in his spirit will be better than hanging on to this sin. We're going to take the last chunk of this passage together. Because in verses 14 through 17, Paul tells the Romans why they have what it takes to kill their sin. Why they're no longer under obligation to their flesh and why they have what it takes to live a life of freedom by killing their sin. Here's why. You have to believe this about you the way they had to believe it about them. You, I wrote on here, you are who God says you are. And in this passage, God says you are his son. And I'm going to leave that in the masculine for now intentionally. Because we are all, in this context, sons of God. Even if you happen to be a female. Verse 14, Paul says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. Don't get... Don't get the order wrong here. Paul's been encouraging us, kill your sin. There's real life out there apart from your sin with Christ, but you have to treat your sin violently. Then he says, everyone who's led by the Spirit of God is a son of God. But Paul is not saying is, if you quit enough sin, God will adopt you and take you home. Not what this says. Being led by the Spirit of God is like, is what distinguishes someone as an adopted son of God. It's like the uniform of the Christian. But we don't get the uniform by getting good at killing sin, right? We, we become God's child by faith, adopted. We'll talk about that in a second. And then Paul says, if you see someone doing what I just said, killing the sin in their life violently, don't come down on them because they're such a sinner. You're seeing someone who's led by the Spirit of God. They are wearing the uniform. One reason why we don't get violent with our sin is because of the way other Christians react when we expose our sin. Paul says, when you see someone who has been serious about their sin and they're going to confess something and expose something, they're wearing the uniform. The other way of understanding this, like you get yourself good and led by the Spirit and then you're on God's team, that's ridiculous. I couldn't make myself God's son any more than I could have made myself a Kansas City chief. In fact, much less. I, I always grew up loving the Kansas City Chiefs when I was a little tiny guy. It's been a painful existence till this last year, let me tell you. I could, have, I could have trained, I could have worked. I wouldn't get in that uniform. We get the uniform by faith. That's, we get adopted by faith. All right, it distinguishes us as sons. I'm ready to go on to verse 15, but before I do, I want to re remind you what verse 13 said. This is the scary one. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. 
But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This one can be scary. Paul knows we can read that and go, holy smokes, God's still going to fry me because I still fail and I still give in to my flesh and the deeds of the body. Paul knows we might think that, and he doesn't want to leave that impression. So in verse 15, he says this, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery leading again to fear. You, re you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Paul wants us to kill our sin. He wants us to grow in obedience. He wants us to progress in sanctification, all those things. But he does not want us to get the idea that how we are doing right now is the basis of our acceptance by God. You have one basis of acceptance by God, and it's what a Jewish carpenter did outside the walls of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. That's the basis of your acceptance by God. We, we're, I talked about obligation. We're not, oblig, we're not obligated. Do you know why? We are not slaves. We are sons. God did not make you a slave. Slaves live under obligation. Here's the way in the Roman world, slavery worked. I had all this debt. I owed to this guy. I couldn't pay it off. I sold myself to him, and now I am obligated. And here's the way that relationship would work. I want to make sure... I make him think I'm fulfilling all my obligations. I don't want to do any more than I have to. I don't want to make him think I'm capable of way more. I just try to stay away from the master and fulfill all my obligations so he doesn't get mad at me. And Paul says, that's not your relationship to God. As a son, we have a vested interest in the work. We're free to grow the business. And here's why I keep using the masculine. We're not slaves. We receive the spirit of adoption as sons. Adoptions that we do not have to be terrified that God hates me today. He doesn't. If he accepts you through Christ. Paul uses a very special word here. Huiothesius uh, is the Greek word that gets translated in your Bible, adoption, or I like this one that says adoption as sons. This, this would have blown the mind of the Jews in Paul's audience because this kind of adoption did not exist in the Old Testament in Hebrew and Jewish culture. Um, inheritance was important to the Jews, but it had to stay in the biological family, had to. You know, if Rachel and I were, were, were ancient Israelites and we didn't have any kids, I could not adopt someone that I was not related to and leave all my property to, to them. It had to stay in the family. My brothers and my brother's kids, my brother's sons, actually, would have gotten Old Blue and the rest of my property. Right? Um, Paul borrows from Greco-Roman culture here. The Romans had adoption like we think of as adoption. Where you can take someone you're not even related to remotely, biologically, and make him your, your full-on son. And the reason it's masculine is because only sons can receive property, can own property, 
And Paul's going to say, we've all been written into the will. We've already, we've been guaranteed the inheritance. So we have the adoption that carries with it the property rights, no matter what our gender might be. So that's why even uh, my sisters in Christ here have received the adoption as sons. Don't worry, he's going to call you children later so you can go back to being a girl, okay? So we get full adoption as sons of God, so much so we don't call him master, though he is. We call him Abba, Father. Abba is an Aramaic word. This is the Greek word for father, pater. Abba is a, is a, is a word that kids called their dads when things was, were good. It's not exactly daddy. I hear that all the time. It's, it's okay to think of it that way. If you, called your, if you call your daddy, daddy, that's fine. It's just a familiar family word. What Paul is saying is, you received the full-on adoption. You can always go crawl up on dad's lap. He accepts you. He loves you. He wants to spend time with you. He wants to laugh with you. He wants to work with you. He wants to teach you. He wants to cry with you. He wants to hold you when you're upset. You don't work your way into that relationship. You were gifted adoption. Now, does it always feel like God accepts you? Does it always feel like God is proud of his little boy or little girl? Or do sometimes you feel like God probably can't stand me right now? Because we're used to living under obligation and performance. Paul knows. Paul knows. He wrote chapter 7 to say, I've been, I get there too. Where I feel like God can't stand me. I'm so worthless. I'm such a failure. There is no way after what I've done, the God of the universe can love me. Paul knew you would think that. And so he wrote this. The Spirit himself bears witness to our spirit that we are God's children. You know what Paul just said? One of the Holy Spirit who lives in you if you're a Christian, one of his jobs is to remind you, Dad still loves you. You do not have to stay away until you're good and punished. Go to him. His acceptance is guaranteed because it's based on what Jesus did. Your acceptance was never based on what you did. So don't stay away from him. Go toward him. He's not angry. He won't disown you. He has not written you out of the will. You're included in the will. And what a will it is. Check this out. The Spirit reminds us we're God's kids. And if we're God's kids, then we're heirs. We're heirs of God. And we're fellow heirs with Christ. Co-heirs with Christ. Do you know what that means? At the end of time, how much of what exists is Jesus going to put his stamp on and say, that is mine. How much of everything that is good is Jesus Christ's? All of it. Paul just said, we inherit that too. We are co-heirs with Christ. Is that good news? Yes, but don't miss why it's here. That truth is supposed to help you kill your sin. The idea that you are a co-heir with Christ is supposed to help you be violent against your own sin. Do you know why? Here's why. 
does Bill Gates ever get a part-time job? Does Bill Gates ever pick up a few hours Sweden cream, flipping burgers? Does he ever pick up a few lawns to mow, get a little extra spending cash? No, that would be ridiculous. Why? Because he's worth over $100 billion. He would not ever even notice. There's no way an extra 20 bucks or 200 bucks or honestly a million bucks. He would even know it was there. It wouldn't do anything for him. It's a colossal waste of time. That's exactly what we are like when we think I can get more than what I've been offered through Christ. You know that? I have everything for all of eternity. Oh, but God has said no to this other thing, and my life would sure be better if I somehow got more. Like, more than what? More than what? More than what you already have? You have infinity for eternity, man. There's not more out there. There's not. And then Paul says this, if indeed we suffer with him, so we may also be glorified with him. Here's what Paul says there. Um, if you live the way I have uh, encouraged you to live, Paul says, if you're going to get violent with your own sin, you are going to suffer. That does not mean you're going to be persecuted. This place is not going to turn into North Korea on you all of a sudden because you're a Christian. But if you decide to get violent with your sin, is it going to hurt? Is it going to get scary? It is. You may have relationships that might change. You may have relationships that might end. You may have people that you hang out with and love you now who will hate you. You may, be, you may ex expose some things that make certain people shame and shun you. You might not make as much money. You might be convicted you have to give some money back. You could lose a job. You could lose your freedom, depending upon what the sin is. But Paul says... It will be worth it. Because there is life out there. Abundant, free, true, real life that only comes through killing your sin. Um, it's a man named Leon Morris that at this point in his commentary on Romans said this, it is important that those who are Christ's live as those who are Christ's. But why? But why? But why? Because it's better. And it's a purpose. All right. I've gone too far. I've gone over. Leave us here. Do you want to be free from some of your sin? Do you want to be free from more and more of your sin? You're not going to if you don't believe these things. Believe you are not obligated to your flesh. Believe that a life of sin leads to death and a, and a life with the Spirit leads to more life. 
that the following Christ is better than your sin. Believe that you are by faith a child of God, a co-heir with Christ. When you get serious about your sin, nothing can touch your relationship to Christ. It will actually uh, make it more real and more full and from your end better than you knew it could. And then at the end, what we have to do, after we believe those things, we just have to live like who we are, even if it hurts, even if it's scary, even if it's costly. And we have God's promise, it will be worth it. Pray with me and we'll end. Father God, I thank you. I thank you for grace. I thank you for being so clear previously in this book that our salvation comes from a free gift of your grace to those who believe in what you did for us at the cross. And thank you that entering into faith with Jesus Christ gets us the adoption of sons where we have everything for all of eternity. Thank you, thank you, thank you that our behavior cannot foul that up. But God, I want to kill my sin. I want to have the life you want me to have. So for me and my family and friends and visitors here, Lord, will you work in our hearts? Hold up for us that sin you want us to kill. And you told us we have to put that to death. We're not under obligation. We won't be forced but we are free to kill our sin by the Holy Spirit. Will you lead us to be gracious and gentle with others who have sin they need to kill? And God, help us to hang on to the promise that we already have everything for all of eternity. There's not more out there We love you, God. Thank you for allowing us to be together again. In Jesus' name, amen.